Hey, keto freaks, this is Carl. Do you or someone you know have trouble focusing? You know what I'm talking about. You sit down to read something, try to figure out your monthly budget, write that novel you've been putting off, or maybe you just can't seem to do one task at a time. Well, you may not know this, but I'm a musician as well as a software developer. Programming is a job that requires focus, long periods of uninterrupted work. It's hard for them and for you. I've created Music to Code By. This is music, yes, but it's specifically and scientifically designed to promote focus. Studies show that when math students were exposed to Baroque music between 60 and 80 beats per minute, they did better with comprehension and testing. So I created more modern music that is neither boring nor distracting, but falls within that tempo range. It's just the right mix. I also made the pieces 25 minutes long. That correlates to research that shows we all get brain fatigue after 20 or so minutes of hard focus. The result is thousands of happy customers. Now, you don't have to be a programmer to reap the benefits of music to code by. It has been known to soothe restless pets, calm fussy babies, and even help autistic kids relax and fall asleep. Listen to some free samples at musictocodeby.net. I'm Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States, sounding much more like a human this week. And in February of this year, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In that time, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet for over two years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. And within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. And we're going to share the progress of my journey through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail. Right. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we hope to share some of that research. Now, where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite all of the research supporting all of the claims that we make. That's right. You'll probably work out pretty quickly. We're both foodies. We love to cook and we love to eat. Yes. So we're going to share great food that we can eat on this diet. And every episode, both of us will share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So let's start podcast number 18, Markers of Disease. So Richard, how'd you do this week? Yeah, I did well, actually. I've just been on a 55k bike ride, so I'm feeling pretty uh, fit. Mm -hmm. This week, I did something interesting. I actually had to play with a CAT scanner. Ooh. And I had, a, I had a, a cardiac artery calcium score test done. Nice. And, um, and we'll talk a little bit. The, the content of today's show is going to be talking about markers of disease. And I was actually looking 
not so much for a marker of disease, but the actual disease itself. And, mm. and uh, we have a special guest today um, that's going to come on in a sec, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as a as a uh, as a diagnostic test. So that'll be interesting. So that's pretty much my week. How how was your week, Carl? So what you're saying is that you you had a great week, and the results were good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't want to spoil the I don't want to spoil the oh, uh, obviously the, they weren't the, bad. Yeah, the you're not results. No, no, I'm a, I'm a happy lad. <laughs> yeah, you're a happy guy. Good. Well, yeah. uh, I went to uh, Oslo, Norway this week. And for a conference and uh, a mixture of keto and fasting and a couple of carby meals. And that just kept me pretty much where I was last week. But I feel great. And um, this was the first time that people in my other world, the software developer world, of which I'm a big, you know, that's a big part of my life. Yeah. They saw me for the first time in six months, a year. Yeah. And I uh, couldn't believe the, the, you know, the conversations that I had. Uh, You've lost re- almost 70 pounds, haven't you? Yeah, about 65. In like, in like three months. Yeah. Well, four months, but yeah. Mm. Yep. And so, yeah, people are just like, what? You know, what did you do? <laughs> and then, of course, I'm yeah. coughing, right? And I'm getting over my cold. So they're, flu, it's hard yeah. to uh, separate the two in many people's minds. But most of the response was uh, very, very positive. And I uh, even had some great conversations with people who are now considering a ketogenic diet. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's reprise. What is a ketogenic diet? We restrict carbs to less than 20 grams a day, incidental carbs. That's right. Yeah. We have enough protein to maintain our muscle mass. For me, it's about 100 grams a day. And for me, it's about 80 grams a day, but everyone's individual. So there's a keto calculator to work all that out. Absolutely. And then we eat enough fat until we're not hungry anymore. You can overeat on fat calorie-wise, but not ketosis-wise. Right. So just basically eat fat until you're not hungry. And if you find that you're getting a little nauseated or whatever from the fat, just cut it back a bit. But if you get hungry, the first thing you go for is, you know, fat. Something fat. Slab of butter, piece of bacon, some cream cheese. That's it. So the whole reason that this diet works is because it enables our bodies to fuel on fat, either fat on our plate or fat that's on our love handles, for example. (laughs) So the reason that we use fat to satiety is because if you don't eat during the day, your body will be able to access body fat for its energy stores. So you don't, on the ketogenic diet, you don't end up eating a lot of food. You may at first because you're not used to not eating so much food. So you found out in the patterns show that uh, we like to at first eat a lot of things that remind us of potato chips and you know crispy cheese and uh, bread products uh, or you know faux bread products and that's all fine but just make sure that you're under 20 grams a day that brings your insulin down which allows your body to burn your body fat yeah all right well before we get into the content of the show let's read some my All right. Today's mail is actually a message on our Two Keto Dudes Facebook group, which you can join. It's uh, fb.2keto.com. We'll bring you there. Just ask to join. It's, it's a closed group, but everybody's welcome. This is from Malcolm Groves. And uh, he says, I think a big part of what has allowed me to stay on keto long term is that I have a quote unquote cheat day every weekend. However, I stay in ketosis the whole time. 
cheat is in quotes for a reason. Uh-oh, cheat day. Yeah. Over the years, I've found lots of keto dishes that I love, like mock Danish, fathead pizza, low-carb bread, keto chocolate, nut muesli, etc., etc. I could eat these and stay in ketosis. Five or six days a week, I'm usually IFing, which is intermittent fasting. Yeah which is typically just eating one meal a day. Mm -hmm. And very recently, I've thrown a 60-hour extended fast in there. One day a week is my Clayton's cheat day. Yeah. I'm not sure what Clayton's cheat day is. So Clayton's is an Aussie thing, actually. Clayton's is non-alcoholic alcohol. Oh. It's the alcohol you have when you when you, when you you dry or you, you haven't turned 18 yet. You I got it. We it, have so. like O'Doul's beer, non-alcoholic yeah. beer. Okay. Yeah. So one day a week is my Clayton's cheat day when I allow myself to have any and all the keto treats I like. I stay in ketosis the whole time. Well, unless I go really crazy, but even then I'm back in it in a matter of hours. Psychologically, I feel like I've indulged and I'm ready to face another week of fasting. Weirdly, I now find myself craving things I could have with no problem. Wow. All because of a simple trick I started playing on myself a couple years ago. The key is artificial scarcity. Yes. And that's a that's a big term the psychologists <laughs> like to throw around. <laughs> If I have them during the week, they're not special, and I'll go back to craving non-keto things. The best part, today is my Clayton's cheat day, and my wife is making keto bread and butter pudding tonight. Oh, got to get that recipe. (sighs) Doesn't that sound good? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then there's a picture of a keto or a diabetic eclair, which... You know, I'm going to have to try making a pat of shoe with carb quick or something. And, yeah. Because and, I love cream puffs and eclairs. Yeah, so do I. So there you go. Malcolm, good on you, man. That's amazing. What a great idea. Yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent idea. I, sh- I shall have to... Uh, I, see, for me, during the day when I when I IF, I'd be quite happy just eating a steak with a pat of butter on. You know, Sure. That'll do for me. So I totally get how this works. You know, if you're craving... Uh, a little bit of a cheat day, then why not cheat with something that's ketogenic? I mean, right. makes sense, you know. You're going to be just as happy. That's right. There is some delicious food on 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 a keto diet. Yeah, and even some things like like we were saying that may have a few scant carbs, like maybe a carb quick based pastry or something sure. like that. But it is going to taste great, and it's not going to knock you out. So today's show is all about markers of disease. Yes. So this is where you should listen if you're thinking about making a lifestyle change. You know, should you have any tests beforehand so that you have a before and after? And, you know, what tests should they be? What should you look for? That is the question. And more importantly, what do those test results mean? That's right. And and should you have them along the way to to get a gauge on your progress? And uh, I think we could probably talk about three major diseases uh, that we can get markers for and we can see how how we're progressing. And I'm thinking maybe diabetes. We both have diabetes and and that's such a major thing. Um, Obesity as well is is really a disease state. uh, And there's some markers that we can talk about. um, How do you know who's obese and and what have you? Mm. But the big daddy is heart disease. So diabetes, sugar-based, heart disease, the big one, you know, heart attacks and strokes, not good. Fatty liver disease is another one, right? Yeah, fatty liver disease would be another good one, yeah. yeah. And in fact, most of these diseases all have a common common cause. I mean, they're, they're all right. problems of energy management, and, and a lot of them come down to uh, mm-hmm. uh, insulin uh, behavior. So let's start with diabetes. What are the markers for that? When, when we go for a blood test... 
What should we include? So diabetes is the body not being able to keep a limit on blood sugar. Yes. So as you eat food, your blood sugar goes high. Your body is supposed to be able to deal with that, keep that blood sugar from going too high, get it back to a safe range as quickly as possible. And Mm. diabetes is the breaking of that process, the breaking of this insulin mechanism for keeping blood sugar down. Mm. So obviously if if, if, uh, if you have a look at somebody's blood sugar, that'll tell you whether they're becoming diabetic or they're already diabetic. Mm. But the um, the problem is that it's a very noisy test. One single blood test, sure, you can say to the person, don't eat for 12 hours beforehand and then that won't affect the results. But if you're fighting a fever, your blood sugar could be artificially uh, raised. Uh, you could, if you woke up Earlier than you normally do, your stress hormones will raise raise your blood sugar as well. The dawn effect, dawn effect as well, depending on what time of day you get your blood sugar done. Right. So a blood sugar, a fasting blood sugar, or even just a random um, finger prick test uh, is not going to tell you a lot of information. And it's not going to tell your doctor a lot of information. It'll give you ranges where you're in. But blood sugar over time is more effective, and that's what A1C is, right? That's right. And and the HbA1c is a better diagnostic of your average your average glucose over a 3-month period. Right. But it's not ideal. It's not the perfect score because there's an HbA1c is a test of how much of the hemoglobin in your blood has been glycated, has been sugar-coated. Onto. Sugar-coated pretty much, yeah. So, um, <laughs> blood normally lasts for 3 months. Right. And so what that does is it gives you a rough 3-month estimate of how much how much glucose you've had in your in your blood so there's a couple of reasons why it's not a great test uh, one of which is not everybody has uh, blood that lives for three months some people mm. the blood lasts longer and some uh, red blood cells last longer and some they they last much shorter and huh. so what it really does is it tells you for a single person point to point it shows you how you're tracking right but you really have to know more about the person. And there's also, there is some, um, there's individual variability in enzymes that we produce that can, uh, uh remove some of the glucose from the, uh, from the hemoglobin. And so, um, uh, there was a great, uh, uh, podcast I was just listening to on my bike ride today from Chris and Master John. And uh, I'll link that from our, in our notes. Um, but basically he, he goes through a bunch of reasons why the HbA1c is not the ideal, um, diagnostic. You really need to know it in context. Um, but it is that it is the easiest marker for a doctor to, to, to order. So HbA1c is a fairly good and easily accessible test. How high is too high? Ideally, you want your HbA1c to show that you've got roughly 5% of your hemoglobin has been glycated. That's an average number. So if you're over 5, you're kind of in the danger zone? Well, once you get over 6.4, then you become what's called a pre-diabetic. And then once you get over 7.5, then you become type 2 diabetic. I see. So if you have a HbA1c of 6.3, the doctor will say you're fine, you're not you're not diabetic. But we know once you once you once it starts rising, it doesn't go down again until you change your diet and lifestyle. All right, so A1c is about as good as it gets for normal humans to uh, to measure blood sugar. What about obesity? Is BMI really effective at all? <laughs> well, BMI is like remedial math for doctors. Uh, right. 
what they're trying to measure is how fat you are. And what they should be doing is sticking a tape measure around your belly. That's going to tell tell them how fat you are, right? <laughs> and a doctor should be able to mark on your on your notes this person looks obese or, you know, what have you. But what they're actually doing is taking your height and they square that and then they divide that into your weight and then that gives them a rough a rough number that has really has no meaning. But um, if you've done some geometry, you probably know that the volume of a regular block is height times width times depth. Mm-hmm. And what they're really trying to get to determine whether somebody's obese or not is to work out what their depth is. And depth is kind of dependent on a lot of stuff, not just fat, but you could have thick bones. Everybody says I'm big boned or whatever. You could right. have a lot of muscle. Yeah, it's it's interesting where this came from. It it was actually uh, it was invented by a Belgian astronomer named Quetelet, who was given the task to find a way to guess at how fat a population was from historical records going back centuries. And the only data that they had that could be even used to approximate this was height and weight. And and he knew a bit of math, and so he worked out well what we're going what we want to do is we want to work out how how deep these people are. That's sort of how fat they are. <laughs> we know their height. Yeah. And we know their weight, and we know that a person is approximately as tall as their outstretched fingers. So let's assume that a person is as wide as they are tall, so they're roughly square-shaped. <laughs> and so let's, let's say that height is width, and what we're looking for is depth. Well, now all we need is the volume. Well, they had weight, and so they, they said, well, you know, we could roughly use weight as a proxy for volume if we assume that all human beings are equally dense. Doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And the funny thing, if you understand math, it doesn't make sense at all, but the funny thing is the reason why this was invented was because they had hundreds of years of doctor data that they wanted to work out in this population who was fat and who wasn't and who got what kind of diseases and who didn't. And mm. so this was historical data mining. Got it. But the funny thing was that they just kept using it. This was in the 18, 1830s, 1840s, and they still use it today. So wouldn't a simple waist-to-height ratio make better sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you if you put a tape measure around somebody's waist, that will tell you roughly how round they are. And if you work, if you take their height, that will tell you roughly how large they are. Yeah. And it, you know, if they're if they're quite round, but they're also quite large, maybe they're not so fat. And if they're quite round but they're very short, then you know they're obviously carrying a lot of body fat. So right. you know, it's it's a very poor measurement. But the thing is that we treat people based on obesity we treat and so we so insurance companies will use bmi as a measure to work out what bin they're going to put you in for sure. uh, for treatment and what have you so um, right. yeah, bmi is a crazy is a, is a crazy measurement but it it has been used historically and doctors love it because they only have to remember two numbers so right and they have the data pretty much to calculate it pretty much all right now when we talk about heart disease it's a whole different story yeah and that's where we're going to focus mostly on today uh and we already know from the cholesterol show that cholesterol is a poor marker of uh heart disease risk and if you've read jimmy moore's book cholesterol clarity that you know exactly what i'm talking about yeah Probably a more accurate marker on the standard blood panel of heart disease risk is triglycerides. Yes. Actually, triglycerides over HDL 
is the ideal one. Right. And uh, if you if you're using American measurements, if your triglycerides divided by HDL are under two, you're golden. Now, mm. Carl and I are both between two and four. Two mm. and four, that's okay. It's not great. It's okay. Between four and six is pretty bad, and six, over six is really bad. And that's probably the best market from current uh, blood tests that your doctor's probably taking you for, uh, sending you for right now. That's probably the ideal um, indicator of cardiovascular disease risk. But it still only gives you one half of the equation for heart disease. And the equation is this you have to have both a high concentration of small, dense LDL particles which mm-hmm. is what triglycerides over HDL tells you. Mm-hmm. And you have to also have sclerosis. You have to have sclerotic arteries for that small, dense LDL to get stuck in. Pretty much. So it, you need the inflammation that's causing the, the, the placking of the arteries right. for your uh, cholesterol LDL to, your small, dense LDL to, uh, to bring oxidized um, lipids too. So yes. And neither you nor I have sclerotic arteries, as we'll discover in the in the rest of the show. Yeah. But we may have more small dense LDL particles than we'd like to have. But still, it's not a risk factor because it's only one half of the required uh, situation. But an interesting thing was whenever I mentioned to anybody my results, the first thing they said was, "Yeah, but what's your LDL?" Well, yeah, but what's your small dense LDL? Yeah, yeah. And that's the whole that's the whole problem with markers. If you're worried about markers when you've got a measurement of the actual disease, yes. the marker is pointless. The right. marker doesn't tell you anything new. Right. So uh, anyway, that I found that I found that very funny when I when I was on Facebook telling people of my lack of cardiovascular disease. The first thing people said would say was, yeah, but what's your small dense LDL like or what's your LDL like? So hopefully now you have a clearer picture of the whole thing. You need small dense LDL and you need sclerosis in order to be at risk for heart disease. And guess what? If your uh, arteries are plaqued and you have calcium in your arteries, that's a good chance you have sclerosis. And Mm. to clear up this whole thing, we're going to talk about the cardio artery calcium score with uh, our guest Ira Cummins. Yes, let's he he's also a bit of an engineer. In fact, he's a lot of an engineer. He's a fully qualified engineer unlike software engineers. Great. So, uh, and he he is kind of the guy who got me into getting this cardiac uh, artery calcium score. Great. Uh, so Ivor, did you want to possibly mention uh, who you are and where you're from? Yeah, welcome Ivor. Hey, thanks, Richard. Thanks, Carl. I'm delighted to be here at late notice. Um, so, yeah, the calcification test. Well, uh, my background is in biochemical engineer, and I've been an R&D manager, an engineer manager 15 years, but I still personally lead problem-solving efforts. Um, mm. But long story short, I got into this low-carb around three years ago. Uh, I had liver markers that were worrying. The docs didn't know what to do with them. So I had to research it myself and it took me a few weeks to find out low carb uh, and fixed everything, dropped 30 pounds. But sometime later after blogging and putting seminars out on the web, um, I was discovered by a guy who funded the Widowmaker movie. All right. And he saw what I was doing and he said, this is great. And he opened my mind to diagnostic scanning because I had focused on root cause of disease, you know, but not really the diagnostics. So I found out within a few minutes of receiving his file and looking up the internet how amazing calcification scanning was and how there was a long history where it hasn't been, it's been kind of suppressed, 
for commercial reasons. Um, so when I looked up the data, though, it was just incredible. I mean, it's prognostic value. I think you mentioned Richard, and it's a great way to put it. It actually sees the disease. Yes. Yeah. Much more so than even CIMT, you know, is great, but CAC blows it away. So let's back up a little bit. Um, talk about the Widowmaker movie just briefly. What is that? So briefly, the Widowmaker movie, uh, the guy I mentioned, David Bobbitt, is an Irish entrepreneur. He owns and runs one of Ireland's biggest uh, corporations. And he got a CAC test by random chance because he was super fit, top 10% of his age group for fitness, no bad markers, running four or five times a week. And he was the weight he was when he was 20. So the doctors thought he was super. Perfect. Yeah. Happened to get a CAC scan in an extensive medical test in the States. Uh, it was a coincidence, really. And he had a score of 906. Wow. Yeah. He had the arteries of an 87-year-old, even though he was 52. Uh, he had a 70% plus chance of a major heart event in the following 10 years. And there's no question wow. about this data. CAC is incredibly accurate. Now, wait a minute. I'm just curious how anyone happens to have uh, a non-standard scan in the United States. That just doesn't happen. Who, who said you really need to have this? Somebody must have been smart. Well, actually, what happened was uh, he is a worldwide corporation. You know, it's a turnover of $500 million a year. And one of his directors in the U.S., a guy I think around 60 years old, David, is very insistent that all of his leaders get aggressive medical, uh, you know, testing. And got it. This guy went ahead at David's uh, behest and he got okay. advanced screening and found out he had a skin cancer which was actually quite dangerous. And as a result of finding it, he got excellent treatment. So in turn, he insisted David get a suite of tests at this clinic. I can't wow. remember the name. And part of the things they do happens to be CAC. Okay, so now let's talk about CAC. What does it do? Okay, so when you've got an inflammatory condition that leads to atherosclerosis and heart disease, your body, when your arterial network is inflamed, your body brings in calcium to the worst affected areas in your arteries, and mm. it kind of shores up your arteries. It takes areas of soft plaque or disease, and it brings in calcium and hardens the artery and creates a bony structure to protect you. So the calcium your body brings in is not a bad thing in itself. It's a protective patching up of your pipes because you're mm. in trouble and your body mm. knows this. But the more calcium you have in your arteries means the more disease and the more plaque. And that's why the amount of calcium correlates directly to the amount of disease and the amount of events you're going to have in the future. I see. So the calcium scan is a high-speed x-ray. Even though your heart's beating and a normal x-ray would be blurry, the calcium is so fast, the CT scan, it sees all the calcium. It's, it's like a strobe. It freezes your heart. Wow. And it accurately sees the calcium all around your heart, and it does multiple slices through your heart and builds up in three dimensions the calcium. Oh, that's amazing. One question I have, and I had this for, I've been asking this question, not getting an answer. So you might know the answer to this. 
is when the cal- when you do start to get healthy and eat healthier and you know a low carb diet and everything and that calcium has to go somewhere does it is there a danger that when it flakes off that it will you know get stuck somewhere and cause problems Okay, that's that's a you're right. That's a common question, Carol. Well, I think people ask the question as well in a simpler form as well. They ask, well, if I do the right thing, will the calcium all go away? And yeah. the answer is not really. So William Davis Wheatbelly, you know the cardiologist. Mm, yes, he's done huge work on this, and he was flagging calcium scanning ten years ago. And all of his patients, he has almost no repeat events, but he's noticed that some people, their calcium slowly goes down with the right diet. Some Mm. people, it stays the same, which is fine. And some people, it still slowly increases, which is kind of okay as well. As long as it's a low few percent increase a year, you're in good shape. Okay. When the calcium is absorbed back in the body in certain people, and no one knows exactly why there's those differences I just mentioned, it is absorbed naturally back in. There's no data or fear of a negative effect that I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. Good. (laughs) Yeah. And if it stays level, that's fine too. And if it increases slowly, that, that sounds disappointing, but actually it's increasing fast. That's the danger. So I'll just give a brief uh, study outcome that is one of the most incredible studies I've seen. And they took a large number of people and there were men with various risk factors, not the healthiest guys. And the people at the start who had, um, they tracked all their calcium at the start and then they tracked over six years, how much was their calcium increasing per year? Okay, and they looked at the guys from the start who were increasing at over for 15 percent a year. So let's say they were 500, then they went to 600, then 720 and so on. So they're increasing more than 15 percent a year. And they compared them with the guys who were increasing less than 15. And in the end, the guys who increased at greater than 15 percent a year in three and a half years, 50 percent of them had heart attacks. Wow. Hmm. But the guys who increased at less than 15% a year, 3% had at six years. Wow. So 97% of them were outliving their heart attacks. They were almost like average people because their calcium wasn't increasing. And this is the interesting thing. It nearly didn't matter how high your score was at the start once you didn't increase. So my engineering brain says if I were engineering the human body, that as the sclerosis uh, increases, maybe the calcium increases. It absolutely does. And so perhaps when you when you stop being sclerotic, you, that's the real danger, right? Is is being sclerotic? Exactly. It's the process, yeah. The process. So, so as you remove that sclerosis and that clears up, your calcium may stay, and it may slowly erode away. But the calcium isn't the problem. It's the sclerosis that's the problem. Precisely, exactly. That's exactly it. And some people say, well, you find in the medical fraternity, they've got these dogmatic beliefs. And one of them Mm -hmm. is that, oh, calcification test isn't perfect. And that's why we don't use it, because you could have soft plaque that can burst. But that's completely misleading because... Mm -hmm. You can have soft plaque, but with a calcification score of zero, 
you only have a, a relatively low amount of soft plaque. The real danger with soft plaque is if you have a high calcium score, because that means you have a ton of soft plaque as well yeah. as all the calcified that you've driven. Mm. Yeah. So if you look at diabetics particularly, a non-diabetic who gets a zero score has roughly a 15-year warranty. Mm-hmm. Nice. The rate of heart attacks in the following 15 years would be so low, you nearly just don't need to worry about it. However, yeah. diabetics, full diabetics who get a zero do not really have 15 years. They've probably got more like five years because diabetes drives so much atherosclerosis. You don't get a 15 year warranty with a zero. And that makes mm. sense. So the yeah. argument they use against CAC is a completely ridiculous argument. You just need CAC more regularly if you're a diabetic. And we should say that this is all based on science, not what Ivor thinks, right? <laughs> well, the beauty of this actually, Carl, it's even better than that. Because if we talk about risk factors and root causes, it would be based on science and opinion. But the beauty of CAC is it's only ba it only needs to be based on mathematics. You yeah, actually right. look at the data. You don't even need to know any of what we're talking about. Maths right. alone mm -hmm. gives the answer. The CAC That's is great. the most predictive test. And if you accommodate the diabetic point I made, that just means you need it more regularly, mathematically, mm -hmm. pretty much maths wins the day. You talked about the carotid artery scan as well. This is one that I had done after I had dropped some weight and I went back to my doc and my LDL was high. My triglycerides were coming down, so that was good, but my LDL was still high. And she was very concerned. So she knew, she suggested to me, actually, the carotid artery scan. And that came back with no significant placking. So I did a victory dance. But um, you say that this is an even better test than that. Is it possible that your carotid arteries could be clear and yet the arteries around your heart could be uh, sclerotic? That's a hard question to answer definitively. So the CIMT is, is a good indicator. And certainly getting a good result is a good indicator. There's no significant issue. Getting a bad result in it is less clear because you could get a apparently bad CIMT. Your intima is thickened. But the question is, do you have unstable plaque that could burst and cause an event? Well, you mm. could have thick intima, but no calcification and no vulnerable plaque or significant mm. vulnerable plaque. So why the CAC is better is a zero is a more powerful indicator than a good CIMT and Got a it. high score is a more powerful indicator, much more accurate than a bad CIMT. It's more binary. It gets rid of all of the gray area in between. You pretty much know exactly where you stand, which was the whole reason that I went in to do this. And I could probably announce now I got a zero. So I'm all very Yay! happy about that. <laughs> hey. Yeah. And, and the, the whole of Facebook knows it knows about it because it was shared like 48 times. So it was all over the place. What I particularly like about this is this, I think, the, the heart disease question is the last bastion of attack that the naysayers to a low carb diet have to convince you to go off it yeah. because they think you're eating all that fat that can't be good for you and you can show them the results in your face. 
Sure, you've lost some weight, and sure, your your blood sugar is five, you know, five point two HbA one C. You know, you're looking wonderful, but you're eating all that saturated fat. You must be clogging up your arteries, and right. And you know, now now I've got I've got a I've got a DVD where I can actually show them I can show them the picture of my heart beating between two yeah. heartbeats, and uh, yeah, you can see, and there's absolutely no calcium there. So now I am I am a diabetic, um, although I've been functionally non-diabetic for 18 months and my doctor told me the other day that I have the option of choosing if I wish to become to be a, a diabetic or not but um, <laughs> uh, she said that if I go back to my to my old diet I would become a di- I would be diabetic again so sure. um, so it's it's questionable really whether whether I uh, whether I should be doing this every five years or every 15 years but I'm probably going to split the difference and do it every decade. That's reasonable, exactly. If you study the maths, you know, you can't fully know because everyone's physically different. You know, the population data tells you something, but you're a special person because you're you. So I would guess at the same thing with a zero at your age and having effectively taken away your diabetic dysfunction. You know, sure, it'll come back if you go on a high carb diet again. And interesting. Yeah. yeah, David Bobbitt actually realized after he got the result it was a shock he delegated his business and spent a few months researching because in the u.s they told him you know you don't do anything you don't need any surgery you know you just need medical therapy lifestyle blah 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 and when he came back to ireland the cardiologists who didn't know much about uh the cac test at all actually um said you need to get stents we need to go straight in and do surgery so he realized not only did he find out he was diabetic and he never knew because no one does insulin tests and no one does postprandial glucose and his glucose hadn't gone out of bounds so he wasn't diabetic by the classical definition of the term his glucose was fine but if you had measured his glucose in the previous years after eating a meal it was going up to like, you know, it should be six millimoles. It was going up to 20. Wow. So uh, yeah. he, he realized I'm diabetic. The medical system has completely failed me because simple mm. tests could have told me. Mm. Now I find out I'm diabetic and I got advanced atherosclerotic disease, which there's a test for it can easily tell you. And they never gave me. And now they're telling me no surgery in the US and in Ireland are telling them we're going to jump in and do surgery. Yeah. So on how many levels are these guys completely up their own? I mean, this is insane. <laughs> hey, this is a family show. <laughs> Not anymore, it isn't. <laughs> but you can imagine his, because he's a businessman, incredibly competent, who's built this huge business. Sure. And he's seeing this, what appears to him, incredible incompetence. And he mm-hmm. finds out he became diabetic from the high carb diet he had, in spite of all of his training and running. Right. He was a high carb yeah. guy, like say Professor Noakes or the marathon runners who dropped dead of heart attacks. He was yeah. fueling yeah. up on carb. He gave himself diabetes. So Ivor, I have I have another question for you. I have two, but I'll start with this one. And that is what happens if you know you have my experience which is I go I, I go on a keto diet or a low carb diet whatever and all my my sugar markers come down, my triglycerides come down, but my LDL goes up. Or stays the same and the doctor freaks out. Um, in my case, she was smart enough to know about the carotid artery scan. Uh, CIMT is what you call it. 
Oh yeah, well it depends. Yeah, well that's actually car or carotid intima medial thickness. There's another yeah. ultrasound test which is a limited Doppler, which my co-author and colleague Jeff Gerber does, and he uses okay. ultrasound to look for actual plaque. And it, that's a better test. I think that's what they did because the result was no placking. Um, all right, so so I said I actually looked it up and I suggested this calcium scan, and she had no idea what that was. She would have had to refer me to a cardiologist. But here's the thing: in order to be able to refer me to a cardiologist, she would have to have some uh, a more significant event, right? And even to even to suggest the ultrasound, she would have to have me fail some sort of test where I bend over and then stand up quickly and then sort of lose consciousness or whatever, right? So I'm concerned that you can't just in the States anyway, go to your doctor and say, hey, I want one of these tests and, and convince your doctor. But uh, so I don't know if you have any suggestions on that front. Well, okay. So in the States... Um I think you can go and pay for it with a doctor's referral. I'm not sure about your doctor uh, because I could check it out. But Jeff in the States, uh, Dr. Jeff, uh, Denver's diet doctor, um, certainly with all my discussions with him, if a doctor refers for a CAC, once you pay, I think it can be done. Uh, but you Jeff Olick. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gerber. Oh, Garrett Gerber. Is denversdietdoctor.com. Oh, I see. I can check it out, but my understanding is if you're willing to pay, you can go and get a scan, a CAC. And that's the ultimate irony, isn't it? Is that the one thing that could save your life isn't covered by insurance. And they don't know about it. And they don't know about it. <laughs> exactly. And that's where the, the Widowmaker movie is an excellent, and it's a big enough budget, very entertaining, dramatic movie that explains why that is. But okay. the Widowmaker mm. movie doesn't get into so much of the root cause of heart disease, but it does explain that awful story. And interestingly, just uh, at the end of my trip in the US, I dropped in on um, cardiologist Bruce Brundage, who was the original co-discoverer of CAC's power in the uh, early 80s. And uh, I interviewed him and we actually discussed in detail for 50 minutes all around CAC and I'll have it edited and out in a day or two and I'll send it on to you guys. He's the father of CAC from cardiology and he talks about why it, why it is as, as ridiculous as you just described, Carl. Mm. I'll, I'll tell you what the experience was from Australia. I, uh, I went in to get a, uh, a CT with contrast of my abdomen for other, other reasons. In fact, I did have fatty liver disease several years ago when I was diabetic, obviously, and I had a, a CT with contrast from then, and I got one from now, and it's, I, don't, I have no fatty liver disease, but I have yeah. in my hand. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yippee. <laughs> so, but I, have, I ha actually have in my hands two DVDs of the actual 3D data, and I'm actually going to 3D print a, a model of my liver before and after a ketogenic diet, just to just to show what it looks like. So I but, love it. But it was interesting. I, I was at the now now what got me into this whole CAC uh, this um, calcium scoring was Ivor's wonderful video. Firstly, of Joseph Kraft, which which I which really helped to publicise this man's work. And we've spoken about it on the Insulin Show, but he really identified you can determine who is going to become uh, diabetic. Almost 10 years, 10, 15 years before they actually do. Yeah. 
So the, the the next video was this CAC, this uh, calcium scoring. So I was in the CAT scan getting this CAT scan with contrast to my lower abdomen, and I asked the radiographer, do you guys do calcium scores? And she said, oh, yeah, we do, but that's really old. Pe- people rarely ask for this. Jeez. And I, I know, and I, I, I went to my doctor to to review the results of the of the scan of my abdomen uh, for the for the uh, uh, verifying fatty liver uh, 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 verifying that I no longer had uh, fatty liver disease, and uh, she didn't even know about it, and she didn't have it in a book, and I had to ask her, and and she had to ring up the radiology department to ask what it's called to put it on the on mm. the script. So so you have to work for it. But for me, in Australia, we have socialised medicine. They pretty much pay for all necessary um, uh, uh, medical support. They don't look after it. You, it's all out of pocket and private insurers won't pay for it either. So yeah. in Australia, it costs me 160 bucks, And, you know, I don't have to pay that for another decade. And that's money well spent. Yeah, money well spent. Exactly. You don't have to spend that on uh, all the complications from heart attacks and all that. Ivor, I don't know about it in Ireland, but I have a friend from Dublin and uh, he's got a pub here in New London, Connecticut, and he complains constantly about the state of healthcare in Ireland. I don't know what you th- what you want to talk about that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the big thing is the trolleys in the hospital wards, you know, queuing and people in trolleys and corridors. The system's overloaded. Oh. And it's it's a funding thing and there's lots of other problems, I guess. But okay. in some sense, people who really need the care will get it and they'll get it covered for nothing, like socialized. But more and more people pay for private health insurance, like a few thousand a year. It's what we pay here, yeah. So that you can walk into a clinic anywhere and get the immediate prescription stuff. Exactly. So you get fast treatment and arguably for people who have, I don't know, subclinical cancer or something on the public system, they might wait a year to get treated. That could really mm. have an impact. And that's why yeah, people yeah. pay for private. But all in all, sure. it's it's a solid system, though, and very uh, effective. It's the waiting list element that's the real problem. Well, I have a friend from Canada, too. Um, many, actually. But uh, my Canadian friends say that in Canada... You'll just like you said, it is socialized medicine and you'll everybody will get care, but you have to fill out a lot of paperwork. And sometimes they will say, uh, no, you know, you, you're not um, a good candidate for that yet. You have to get pretty sick before they'll operate. So most people with money just go across the border to the United States and pay to have surgeries done. And so because the money they're saving on general health care um, when they have anything that's you know necessary and they have to wait for. In Canada, they'll just come have it done in these in the states and pay the dollar. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's to be honest, that's a common story around the world. Yeah, um, but I would say in Ireland though, CAC, you have to go to a MD or GP, and he'll write a letter and you get it for around two hundred dollars. Okay, great. Yeah. So, just before we wrap it up here with you, Ivor, uh, is there any place that you can point us to on the web where we can read more about your studies and what you've done? Yeah, well, I'd say, uh, thanks, Carl. If you if you Google uh, Fat Emperor or Ivor Commons, to be honest, you'll get all the hits to the YouTube channel, the web, uh, my website and all that stuff. And I do yeah. a mixture of hardcore technical and much higher level kind of stuff i just do a a huge mixture Uh, but there is one quick thing though carl you mentioned ldl 
and yeah. your doctor being worried and everyone talks about LDL and it's the one big argument against high fat diets, right? Well, right, sure. I, I like to quote, um, why listen to us guys? So Dr. Uh, Thomas Dayspring in the US has given over 4,000 lectures to cardiologists, doctors all around the States and he's in huge demand and he's a lipidologist. So he's a card carrying expert in cholesterol and disease. And he told me a while back when I sent him some data and asked him some questions, he said, A, most myocardial infarctions or heart attacks are associated with insulin resistance. And yeah. B, mm -hmm. yeah. he said, LDL, unless it's through the roof, like over 5.3 millimoles, LDL. Which is what in milligrams per deciliter? Oh, in milligrams per, oh, sorry, it's over 200. Okay. Just for the LDL, not the total class, just the LDL over 200. Wow. Unless it's well over that, he said, LDL is a pretty much useless biomarker for cardiac disease. Uh, I mean, yeah. he's the guy. He's the top guy. Thomas Dayspring is the man. I mean, I, I was first introduced to his stuff. He did videos on YouTube with Gary Taubes for uh, Fireman in, I think, Chicago. And uh, for, for an insurance company that was looking after funding the medical care for firemen. And he was brilliant. He really was. And I, I just wish I could understand half of what he, half, mm. half of his presentation. But uh, the classic LDL is kind of junk science unless it's through the roof. Yeah. And yeah. Ivor, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Sorry, I probably went on a bit at times. <laughs> oh, we could listen to your awesome accent all day, believe me. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> all right, we'll see you later. Thanks, Ivor. Bye Much now. appreciated. Cheers. Okay, I think it's time for recipes. 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 I want you to go first, my friend, because I love pork belly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, so do I. And uh, we, uh, we bought a massive pork belly this weekend from Costco, and we're doing two things with it. Well, in fact, we're, we're doing, we're doing three things with it. One of them is right in my belly right now. We'll talk about this <laughs> right, this recipe, which is a roast, how to make a roast pork belly. Uh, but on. By next week, we I will have probably made bacon out of the rest of it. Whoa. So that's going to be that's going to be interesting as well. So homemade uh, bacon. Yeah. But anyway, let's. Uh, so, uh, but that's going to take a week at least to cure, and then I've got to smoke it. That's a whole other process. But All right. Let's say you go to your sh supermarket or your butchers, and you see a pork belly, and it kind of looks in profile like a piece of bacon, but it's a big slab. So, what do you do with it? Well. One thing you can do is you can make a roast pork belly. And what we do is we cut two onions into halves. So we make four little circles of onion and we stick the pork on top of that in a tray. Okay. And uh, now what you want to do with the pork is you want to give it a wash uh, just to make sure that it's and, – and, and dry it off with a paper towel and then rub it with some olive oil and then uh, score it. And you want to score it in – and I'll show, I'll show you pictures on my website of this pork, but you basically use a cross-hatch pattern. And you're okay. scoring probably half an inch – between a centimetre and half an inch – between each score and you're getting the score you're basically using an extremely sharp knife and you're scoring it down just through the skin layer into the fat layer okay and then uh and then what you're going to do is you're going to rub salt into that surface the skin surface and the skin surface will be up and we rub salt into it and into those scored channels and then put it in a hot oven. And we have the oven on the hottest possible temperature for about 15 minutes. And 
basically, once that has happened, that's what gets the crackling going on the top of the skin. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's delicious. And then once the crackling has happened, you want to reduce the temperature down to about 180 degrees Celsius. Uh, I think that's about 375 Fahrenheit. And uh, you're going to do, put it in the oven for about an hour and a half. And uh, that's going to cook the rest of this, uh, this roast. And the crackling by the end of that will be glassy. And Ooh. it will be crisp, and it is delicious. Wow. And it's in my belly right now. Nice. So, <laughs> nice. Oh, that's so great. that's my recipe, and I will put links to um, a blog post uh, about that on uh, on the show notes. So, so Carl, what have you got today? Well, I don't know if you've heard this uh, urban legend. But apparently, if you take a cheap piece of meat, mm -hmm. uh, a cheap cut of steak, like a um, like a round steak or a London broil or something like that, yeah. and you coat it in salt, kosher salt or sea salt, like a thick salt, and I mean coat it, every surface coated in salt, and you let it sit for one hour per inch of thickness of meat. So it's really a dry brine. It's a dry brine, yeah. And what this does for cheaper cuts of steak is it makes it much more tender. Mm. And I saw this trick, somebody posted it on whatever, and I tried it. And oh my God, is it amazing. And I did it with a London broil. Um, it was about a half an inch thick. I let it sit for an hour, and it, at least an hour, right, mm. per yeah. inch of thickness. So it was a half inch thick. I let it sit for an hour. Uh, you can brush off or rinse off the extra salt if you like. I, I I just brushed it off and I left some on there yeah. and grilled it on the grill. And oh my God, that was amazing. But you might jump to the conclusion that, well, maybe I should do that for every cut of meat. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that's not really a good idea. And so my, my recipe is actually a blog post by Oliver Schwainer Albright, who, who it's all about and this is at foodandwine.com. Right. And it's all about when should you salt meat before cooking it? A writer tests the two prevailing and diametrically opposed approaches ah. defining the best method. And so this guy says that chefs disagree all the time. And in this case, they're disagreeing all the time about when to salt stuff. So he says, on one side, you have New York City chefs, Tom Colicchio of Kraft and Top Chef fame, and Jean-Francois Brel of Daniel, both of whom assert that meat should never be seasoned until just before cooking. And Brel goes even further with steaks, which he finishes seasoning only after they've been seared or grilled. And on the other side, you have David Tannis of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, and San Francisco's Judy Rogers, whose uh, The Zuni Cafe Cookbook contains an entire section on the art of salting meat ahead of time. Right. So Mario Batali of New York City's Babu seasons duck legs for confit the day before. Mm -hmm. Suzanne Goen of Los Angeles uh, Luce's, and I can't, I'm sorry if I'm totally killing these <laughs> pronunciations. I'm just reading. So... So basically, all these chefs disagree, but they're disagreeing on something that they're holding as an absolute, right? A fundamental. Right. And yeah. that's when you know, when you have disagreements, it's just like the protein issue, right? Mm. When you have disagreements, you know there's more to the story and it's not black and white. There's variability. So some steak, some cuts it's going to work with and some it's not. And it's probably a good idea to do your own experiment. 
And that's exactly what this guy did. Right, good. And he posted about it. So he had all these uh, opinionated friends over for a meal <laughs> of multiple meat courses, all of which we there were tasted blind with a table of good eaters, right? They know their way around a steak and yeah. critiqued. So he, so he did two chickens, one salted before and one not salted before. He did ribeyes, dry-aged ribeyes, right? He also did pork racks. And then he also did braised lamb shanks. Mm. So, what do you think happened with the chickens? Well, I reckon the chicken. I reckon the chicken would have worked. The chicken would have been more tender when you salted it. Yeah, that's pretty much the. Both birds' skins became crispy and golden in the oven. The breast juicy and delicious, but the skin of the chicken that was seasoned just before roasting tasted saltier than the meat. And he's not sure if he would have noticed it on his own when he sampled next to the other chicken. It seemed kind of clumsy and amateur effort. But the chicken that had been seasoned the day before was definitely more flavorful. Yeah. But also it tasted more balanced. So it was more succulent, right? And everybody yeah. agreed on that. So it wouldn't have necessarily put salt into the bird. It would have drawn liquid out, of, drawn water out of the bird. So Yeah, well, um, brining sort yeah. of does both things. It draws water mm. out and then it draws it back in. Okay. And and you know with along with the salt, right? Okay. So the dry aged ribeyes. What do you think happened with those? Um, I I'm going to say that it didn't improve. Yeah, there was no difference. Right. Okay. Because there's a lot of fat in that meat. Yeah. You know, there's nothing more to tenderize. It's already yeah. a tender meat. Yeah. 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 Sure. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So how about the racks of pork? Um, I'm not sure with the rack with the pork rack. Um, I'm pro I'm going to say it didn't have an effect. But I'm really not sure. Actually, you're you're right. But it, well, it did have effect, but it had the opposite effect. Huh. The one salted just before roasting was clearly moister and more delicious. Ah. The pork seasoned the day before was so dry it was the most disappointing thing they ate. Right. So if you've got pork medallions or pork uh, pork rack, don't uh, don't season them a day beforehand. Yeah, yeah. And how about the lamb shanks? Well, what do you think? Um, it's lamb shanks, so it's probably going to be not a lot of fat, but a lot of collagen and stuff. So I reckon it's going to improve it. Exactly right again. I reckon the salt will probably help break down that collagen. And it was unanimous. The lamb season the day before was exquisite, dramatically better than the other. <laughs> four for four. If the pork was the evening's least inspired dish, this was the most delicious. It had less to do with discernible saltiness than the overall composition of flavors. It tasted richer, fuller, meatier, more like lamb. I know there's a there's a place in Australia called Kangaroo Islands, a very large island where the lamb are supposed to taste delicious because of the salt spray ah. that continually bases them all the time. And so apparently these lamb are like the best in Australia. Well, you mean when they're alive, the, the so, spray from the ocean. When they're alive. No. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 brined, they're, they're, brine. they're, they're brined <laughs> live, <in> brine. <laughs> oh man, exactly. But apparently, Kangaroo Island lamb is awesome. So apparently, what's going on here is because the the pieces of meat that have more connected tissue, more collagen, maybe the salt is breaking uh -huh. it down, and and that's maybe why yeah. it works on the tougher pieces, but not on the. Although the pork rack doesn't make any sense to me either. I don't know. Well, pork's, pork's got a lot of fat in it. Mm. It's got a lot of intramuscular fat. And, of course, the, the fatty cut of beef, that wasn't helped at all. So maybe it's just that in, a fat, in, in meat with a lot of fat, there's nothing to draw out, no moisture to draw out because it's, it's maybe. fat. Maybe, yeah. 
good hypothesis. I don't know, but they've done the experiment, so we don't have to. <laughs> exactly, and I'm going to do that lamb shanks thing next. Uh, that's going to be my next uh, recipe. Well, that's a show, Richard. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Well, of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong or something that you don't agree with, uh, some more research that you found to support or refute what we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our Facebook page, and that is fb.twoketo.com. Or you can just post it in the comment section of our website. Every page, every show in the archives has a comment section, and the general page has a comment section, too. Awesome. All right, until next week, keep calm and keto on, my friend. Keto on, Carl. All right. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. <laughs> <laughs>